Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, The Freedom of Limits, which was taught for Lent in 2021. Our culture speaks a lot about freedom, but usually assumes freedom is escaping any limitations. However, true freedom is found not in rejecting limits, but embracing the limits God has placed on us as His created image bearers. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. And, I, and I'm not sure uh, how many folks still have kids in, but I do want to uh, note that this morning's topic may be rated at least PG-13 uh, or R. We're going to be talking about marriage and sex this morning. So with your children, you should be aware of that. I'm letting you know now uh, that that will be what we're talking about. So with that, we're going to go ahead and dive into the Word. Uh, glad to have everyone here. Uh, we're going to be looking in Genesis 1 and 2 again. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, and Genesis chapter 2, verses 20 to 25. And as you're turning there, and they'll be up on the screen, I do want to remind you, as I'm dealing with some of these a uh, little bit more difficult topics, please remember, I'm up here preaching the Scripture I'm opening God's Word and teaching what it says. If I were engaging in a one-on-one conversation with the friend or loved one who might be not walking in the freedom of limits, who might be rejecting some of the way God has made things, my approach would be uh, definitely a bit more gentle, working through, asking questions, trying to listen. That's not the nature of what I'm doing up here. But I'm reminding you of this because if you are dealing with someone you care about, uh, it's not going to exactly look like it does for me in a sermon up here on a Sunday morning. Be aware of that. But I am trying to equip you with what God says so that we can know how we can then go out and relate and and help uh, our friends. So with that, Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Hear the words of the living God, your creator, your redeemer, and your Lord. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then in Genesis chapter 2, verses 20 to 25. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother And be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Well, as I said, in this series, we've been looking at the idea that when we were created by God, we were created with a specific nature. And that nature has certain great things, but it also has certain limits. And freedom is found not in rejecting the limits, but in fact embracing them. You remember early on I used the analogy, if you're a fish, water is not a restriction, a prison. It is a limit, 
but you don't find freedom by flopping out onto the dry ground. You're going to die if you do that. We also have a nature, and it's not only with our physical nature, there is a metaphysical side to us, and freedom comes from embracing that. And as a result, many of the topics that I've talked about, you can read current news stories, but few as many as on the topic for this week, which is that of marriage and sex. Just in the past uh, two weeks, on Monday, March the 8th, the town of Cambridge, Massachusetts, where Harvard is, announced that they are recognizing polyamorous unions. So in Cambridge, Massachusetts now, you can claim that your family consists not just of a man and woman being married, or even just of a man and a man, or a woman and a woman, but one, uh, multiple people, as many people as you want, basically. You don't even have to necessarily live together. Cambridge is only the second city that has done this, but their legislation was touted because they crafted it with input, and it was basically written by the Polyamory Legal Advocacy Coalition, the PLAC. You probably did not even know that there was a Polyamory Legal Advocacy Coalition, but trust me, in America there is an advocacy coalition for every possible thing you can think of. And so this group helped them write this, and they came out and said, this is how marriage and family is now defined. It can be polyamorous. Uh, then the very next Monday, on March the 15th, the Roman Catholic Church put out official uh, statement from the Vatican, and it included, and this kind of surprised people, that uh, we ran this by the Pope. The Pope has seen, read, and approved this. And the statement said they could not bless same-sex unions, that not only whether they were married or not, they could not bless the union itself because, in their words, they were inherently sinful. Now, this caused a firestorm of controversy, which, if you've actually followed, I, I'm not Roman Catholic, but uh, the Roman Catholic Church basically said, what we've believed for 2,000 years, we're just letting you know we still believe the same thing. So why it caused a firestorm of controversy might be a little bit unusual because it's kind of like America standing up and saying, by the way, the Constitution still exists and we still follow it. Uh, it's just a statement that we're saying and doing what we've always believed, but there had been hopes that the Roman Catholic Church was going to change it. Now these bring up the question, and then in fact I could even bring up a third article, Christianity Today had a major article on the issue of cohabitation even among people who identify as evangelicals, that they're choosing to live together but not be married. And that was just this past week as well. All of these bring up the question, what is a family? What is marriage? Are there limits to what is actually a family and what actually is marriage? Are there limits regarding human sexuality, or as it oftentimes in our culture, is the only limit as long as it's two consenting adults. What does the scripture say, and how does that relate to our freedom? So what I want to do, I'm going to begin today by giving us a theology of marriage and sexuality, mainly coming here from Genesis 1 and 2, but we'll see how these are developed in the New Testament as well. And I want to state that I read an article recently where somebody was saying there's only a handful of verses regarding some of these questions. 
I don't know what Bible the guy's reading. It literally begins in Genesis 1, and the last mention is at the very end of the book of Revelation. It's hard to overstate how central a topic this is throughout Scripture. It's not a couple of verses. It's the entire plot and storyline of Scripture, as Tony was talking about at the beginning of the meeting this morning. You really can't understand creation, the fall, redemption, and the consummation of where we're going apart from understanding this topic. So what does the Scripture teach? Number one, it teaches us that marriage is part of God's creation of humanity. Uh, Like we saw with work a couple of weeks ago that pre-existed the fall, marriage pre-exists the fall. Notice in Genesis chapter 2, verses 22 to 24, we read, you know, the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Adam says, uh, this bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then in verse 24, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. This thing here of being united to the wife is the statement of marriage. There is a covenant between a man and a woman. Notice that God creates the woman specifically for the man. And we're even told he's letting Adam see there's nothing else in creation that corresponds to you. Some of these animals are bigger. You know, some of them are stronger. Some of them may, uh, you know, have skills and capabilities you don't, but none of them are your equal. None of them are the image of God. And then he creates this woman who is named Eve and brings to Adam, and Adam recognizes now, finally, someone that is my equal, someone that corresponds to me. And then the statement out of this is that this is the basis of marriage, that for this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. In all likelihood, the text, that verse 24 is actually God speaking about what's going on here, not Adam's words. Adam probably is not the one who stated this. Adam doesn't have a father and mother, doesn't understand what's to come, but God does. And so God is stating, I've done this because here is the union of man and woman, and it's essential to what it means to be human. So we see that marriage is not a human institution, but it was designed and given by God at the dawn of creation. So any idea that, well, you know, human societies over time came up with stop. No, not how it happened. God gave marriage. God defined marriage, and he created it to accomplish certain purposes. And this is a key issue. When we have something that God gives to us or anything else in life, you know, tools are good for some things, and not good for others. They're in their proper place. Chainsaw is a wonderful thing. It's a terrible thing to try and brush your teeth with, okay? Toothbrushes are great things for brushing your teeth. Not so good at cutting down trees. They've each got their own purpose. The same thing is true with marriage, and it was given by God. So that's the first essential point. Secondly, God has given marriage because it is essentially related to procreation. Notice here in verse 24, it specifies they'll be united and then they will become one flesh. When we do pre-marriage counseling, I ask couples, and for some reason they get a little nervous when you're going to talk about sex in pre-marriage counseling, 
I'm not nervous about it. It's part of life. It's part of what God has made. And when you ask this, what does it mean to become one flesh, they fumble around as if it's difficult to picture what that phrase means. It means what you think it means. That's exactly what it means, okay? That's what he's talking about, that they're going to be united and then they're going to become one flesh, which is the sexual relationship. And this is a fulfillment of Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Remember I've been saying, Genesis 1 gives us one picture, and then God steps aside and from a different angle tells us about the same thing, kind of expands out and gives us more information. And in Genesis 1, we were told, God blessed them and and says, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth. If you've been around and you're of a certain age, you realize the way that happens is through the sexual relationship. There is no other way for this to happen. So one flesh, while it does include other aspects than the sexual relationship, certainly does include it. It's related in a fulfillment of this command to be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth, what is usually referred to as procreation. And so it is an essential reason for marriage to provide the proper context for sex and procreation. And I'll deal with this a little bit in after hours, but let me say, you may ask them, well, what about a couple who either because of age or infertility cannot procreate? But the issue is, as male and female, the uh, relationship itself can produce children. Even if in a particular instance, because of something that has happened or some reason that there just can't be procreation, that doesn't mean that they can't be married, okay? And that's different and distinct, which I'll deal with in after hours, as to whether a question of whether two men can get married, because inherently, two men cannot procreate. Whereas inherently a man and a woman can procreate, even if in this particular instance they no longer can procreate. So it's essentially related. Now what that would lead to then is the third point, which is that marriage is the union of one man and one woman. When I say it's essentially related to procreation, that's kind of a a tip to us what's coming next. Well, it's specifically stated in the text as well that marriage is the union of one man and one woman and nothing else. Now, why do I say this? Notice here in Genesis 2.24, for this reason a what? Man, the word means male, uh, will leave his who? Father, that's the male parent, and mother, the female parent, and be united to his wife. And in case you're wondering, in Hebrew, also in Greek, the word for wife is the word for woman. That's what it is. So it's literally he will be united to his woman, and they will become one flesh. So notice here we have a male and a female who the, the male specifically, we're being told, is leaving a male and a female, and the male and female are being united. That's marriage. So it is clearly being taught here, and I'm going to come and show you Jesus is even more clear on this, uh, that it is a male and a female who are being united. But notice it's one male and one female. The words there, man, father, mother, wife, are all singular, okay? And it matters. They are all singular. None of them are uh, a multiplicity. Now, one might say, 
Well, but I think you're just kind of reading into the text. There's only a man and a woman there. There's only one at the time. So maybe it's not that. Well, Jesus spoke to this issue. I'm also going to deal with this in after hours because one of the dumbest things I've ever heard is, well, Jesus never talked about this. Yes, he did. For many reasons, including when it's written in Genesis, that is Jesus speaking. Okay? All the Bible is Jesus speaking to us. But Jesus did speak to this topic. In Matthew 19, the Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus. And they came to him and they were going out of the book of Deuteronomy and they were trying to argue with him about divorce. And Jesus goes back to Genesis chapter 2. Because he says, if you want to talk about marriage, we've got to go back to where it's founded. So notice in Matthew chapter 19, beginning at verse 4, he says, haven't you read that at the beginning... Now that phrase is, he's telling us where he's going. The very first word in the Bible in Hebrew is bereshit, which means in or at the beginning. Uh, The word Genesis comes from the Greek word that is used there. That's where we got the title of the book of Genesis. So Jesus, in our parlance, is saying, hadn't you read Genesis? Here's what it tells you. The Creator made them male and female. So notice here, Jesus goes back to Genesis chapter 1, because that's not in chapter 2 directly like that. That's out of Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. And notice Jesus says, we're going to talk about marriage. Here's the first thing. It's male and female. Secondly, uh, for, and for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Do you notice there's one word Jesus has in there that's not in Genesis 2.24. What is it? Two. Now, Jesus is not changing the Scripture. He's telling us what it meant. He's bringing out, I just showed you that that's actually there in the text in Genesis chapter 2. Jesus doesn't want them to miss this. So he says the two will become one flesh. And so they are no longer two, but one. So Jesus here, in quoting from the Genesis account, specifies it's a male and a female. Again, a father and a mother. And he specifies that it is two becoming one. And so the design for marriage, God's design for marriage, is that it is a lifelong union between one man and one woman. Now, if you're wondering, what about the guys in the Old Testament that had multiple wives? Tune in to After Hours. I'll talk about that as well. I just don't have time this morning to delve into all of it. But all of that, and if you read Matthew 19, you'll see they're saying, well, Moses allowed divorce. And Jesus is telling them, but this is because of the hardness of your heart. That was not God's intent. God's intent was one man, one woman, lifetime union. There's all kinds of other crazy things that happened, including polygamy that happened, but that was not God's design. Fourth thing is marriage is the only context for sexual activity. I'm about to become really popular. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And by the way, I don't like saying things that people don't like hearing, in case you're wondering. I'm not maladjusted. It's just the text, okay? And the worst thing that the church can do is put a question mark where God has put an exclamation point. We simply can't do that, friends. There's no freedom if we love 
the people around us, we need to love them to tell them when they're locking themselves in a jail and where freedom is actually found. So notice Genesis 2.24, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. Notice where become one flesh is. It's at the end. It is after the leaving and the, the old word was cleaving. It was after they have been united together. And it is always done this way. This is what Genesis 2.24 is. And it is the foundational text. When you read throughout the New Testament, they want to talk about marriage. Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 6. It is used as well in, uh, it's the implication throughout 1 Corinthians 7. It's used in Ephesians chapter 5. Um, It's what Jesus appealed to in Matthew chapter 19. It is the foundational text. And it is always a statement that any other sexual activity is sinful. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells us that you have to either be celibate or married. If you're reading through 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 6, some of the wives in Corinth apparently had felt that their spirituality made them as such that there was no longer going to be sexual union within marriage, which Paul has to tell them in chapter 7 is not right. It's wrong. That's, that's not an option once we're married. But in 1 Corinthians 6, the guys said, you know, they were being good Gnostics. They said, hey, that's okay. We'll go down to the temple and sleep with the prostitutes. And Paul says, absolutely not. And he appeals to Genesis chapter uh, 2. And then we roll into chapter 7, and here's what he writes. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. But since there is so much immorality... Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And by having there, he's using it in the full sense of the word, that you're having each other and becoming one flesh. There is a place for a sexual relationship. It is called marriage. And then as he he ends, as he brings it down to verse 9, he says, If they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. And the NIV has added the words with passion, but they're not there in the Greek. They're They're saying, we think he means burn with passion. That might be. It might be it's better to marry than to burn. And I'll let you determine what that would mean. But Paul's saying here very clearly, look, I wish, he even says, I wish all other guys were like me. I'm perfectly happy being single. But most guys, that's not their gift. Most people, that's not the way you're made. Most people, that's not the call. And therefore, if it's not, you should get married because that is the only context for sexual relations. The word immorality there in verse 2 is the Greek word porneia. You might recognize the root from pornography, which is just the picture of it. But the word porneia, which throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament and in Jewish culture refers to any and all sexual activity other than a man and a woman who are in the covenant of marriage. Anything else is porneia. There are sometimes extra words that can be used. For example, porneia sometimes covers adultery. But there is an extra word that can be used for adultery. Porneia covers homosexuality. There are separate words for homosexuality. But porneia is the big word. That's why the NIV has just used the term. It used to be called fornication. But sometimes in English, fornication specifically refers to a young man and woman who are not yet married and they have sexual activity. This word is broader than that. It means anything other than a man and a woman who are married to one another. Anything else 
is porneia. It's all outlawed by God, and it is included anytime the word is used. And by the way, yes, Jesus did use this word. He used it quite a number of times to try and reference and deal with this. And so Paul indicates that uh, if you're not married, no sexual activity. Now, let me be really clear, because sometimes people come up and just say, well, you know, Paul was a cranky old guy, and he's against sex. He's really clear if you read 1 Corinthians 7, he's not. He says, no sex unless you're married, but if you are married, you need to be having sex. Unless you've agreed that you're going to take a couple of days off for fasting and prayer, and then I want you to come right back together. Okay? Uh, Because, again, there is freedom within the limits. So the Scripture is not against sex. It was God's idea. We could have procreated all kinds of other ways. And if I sit here and think of them, I vote for the one he gave us. It's a good one. I like it. Okay? My wife's very embarrassed right now. But... It's not that it's against sex. It's against sex in the wrong place. I sat around a campfire with uh, Tim and Cindy and five of our grandkids last night. Fire's a wonderful thing in the right place. The Scripture says it's not good to scoop it into your lap. Okay, that creates problems. And so the scripture is telling us that here. And so the sexual relationship is given for within this covenant marriage between a woman and there is no other legitimate context, period. Exclamation point in the scripture. Now here's why. And this is so important. Because the fifth point is marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. You're not only not dealing with the human institution. When we're messing with this, we're messing with what all of human history is heading towards. The point of all of this is that Jesus is going to be married to the church. That an marriage is actually given as a picture of the relationship of Christ and his bride, the church. In Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is writing... And he's talking. This is the one, you know, uh, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, and wives submit to your husbands, and all of this. It's a very famous text. But as he comes to the end, Paul says this. He's giving the basis. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Has anybody heard this before? Okay, it's Genesis 2, but notice he brings out the implication of two just like Jesus does, okay? The two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Please hear me on this. You need to understand. God did not cast about for a good picture of the relationship between Christ and the church and say, huh, I've noticed men and women are getting married. That would be a good picture. I'll use that as an analogy. That was there first, but I mean, no. There was always in the heart of God a relationship between God and his people, and he created human marriage to be a picture of that. And so when you alter marriage, you are distorting, undermining, or destroying the picture God gave to represent the relationship between Jesus and the church. 
There is nothing that could be more serious to mess with than this particular issue. Marriage is not a cultural creation. It is not a human idea. It is given by God as part of the creation of humanity because it's where we're going. Friends, when you get to the end of history and there is the great feast, it is what, what, what is the feast? The marriage supper of the Lamb. History is going to end with the wedding feast. And it is going to be an eternal wedding feast. That is where we are going. It is there at the dawn of creation. And when you go all the way to the end of the story, it's a marriage again between Christ and his bride, the church. And this is why when you start talking about same-sex unions or polygamy or no-fault divorce, which, friends, was actually undermining, we would not have gotten to polygamy and same-sex unions if we had not gone with no-fault divorce, whatever that idiotic statement means, okay? That there is no such thing. When, when, when a marriage falls apart, there is fault. Somebody is at fault. But this is what we've done. And see, what they do is they strike at the very heart of what it means to be human and the goal towards which human history is moving. Okay? That's what it is. Now, what you will hear, and I can already hear if somebody listened to me, they would be shouting at me right now and saying, you need to be on the right side of history. To which my answer is, I am. Because here's where history is going. One God is marrying one bride in a relationship that will last for all eternity. That is the right side of history. That is where history is going. And anything that undermines or distorts that, friends, we want to be away from. Now let me speak here real briefly before I move to the last one. Um, for all of these, I, I, I want to be conscious just like I am when we talk about abortion or different things. The gospel offers forgiveness, friends. There, there, there is a clean, fresh start. God offers to deliver us. And so with any of these things, if somebody is listening to this and they, they are involved in a same-sex relationship or polyamory or cohabitation or they've been divorced, the gospel offers forgiveness. But please hear me, the gospel offers not only forgiveness from the penalty of our sin, it offers power to no longer walk in that sin. What it does not offer to me is to say, I'm okay, just the way I am, and, and I can continue to engage in this destructive behavior. That's what the gospel doesn't say, because it is, in fact, destructive. Now, the last point, and then we'll go to applying the word, sexual immorality, because of this, is considered a very serious sin. See, our culture, we're so bifurcated on this. We're all messed up for the longest time. I mean, when I was a kid, the whole point was, what is up with all these Christians and talking about sexual sin and you're all repressed all the way up until the Me Too movement, which was a logical outcome of where we were heading. It was absolutely baked into the cake from the beginning. 
The point is the reason we speak about it is because it is considered a serious sin in Scripture. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he's having to deal with the men going down sleeping with the temple prostitutes and the sexual sin in Corinth. Here's what he says. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, that's porneia, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. Thanks be to God. Not what some of you are, what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Friends, that is a great verse right there. And that is a verse of hope. But notice what the Apostle Paul does. He begins the list Four of the first five things are sexual sins, and the only one that's not is idolatry, which he's bringing up because the context that they're doing for many of these sexual sins is down at idol temples. That's why it breaks into the list. So Paul begins the list with that. Secondly, notice that he's referring to a whole host of sexual sins. He uses the broadest term, porneia, but then he says, I want to be clear. That means if you're committing adultery, if you are a male prostitute or a homosexual offender, and people are trying to change what these Greek words mean, they mean what they've always meant. I do read the Greek, unlike the people who are saying these things. They mean what they mean. And Paul's giving a whole variety of terms here because he's trying to tell us that these things are not consonant with a Christian life. They simply are not. Christians, uh, this is not a valid option. We have to deny our desires for any sexual activity apart from a man and a woman within the covenant of marriage. And please hear me, that does not mean, well, if I have same-sex attraction, I have to try and stop this. No, if you have heterosexual attraction, you're going to say no to a lot of wandering desires you have. It means that I recognize I have urges that are, this is a shock, they're wrong. I think and desire things that are wrong. And freedom is found in saying no to that, not in indulging it. Paul comes back to this in just a few verses. In 1 Corinthians 6, uh, 16 to 20, he says, Do you not know that he who unites himself to a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. Notice he's right back to Genesis chapter 2, and he's referring it to sexual activity. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. That word porne again, which means anything other than a man and a woman who are married to one another. Flee from it. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Is Paul trying to minimize the effect or maximize the effect? I mean, he's being clear. You're sinning against yourself. You're destroying yourself. And then he says in verse 19, Do you not know 
that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. There is much in the church today that simply wants to ignore a bunch of this. As I said, Christianity Today just had a major article on the number of people who self-identify as evangelicals. And hear me on this. They will turn and condemn same-sex activity while they are sleeping together with people to whom they are not married. God does not brook that. They're both sin. They are both against God's command. And so Paul here says, no, you were bought at a price. Your body is to honor God. So please hear me. There is no sexual activity other than a man and a woman married to one another that is acceptable before God. Period. Am I clear? Trying to be clear. I just want to be, want to be clear while I'm on the wrong side of history. I'm just going to delve in deep. Okay? This is not popular. And I realize that. But I'm telling you what our culture has done is locked ourselves into a jail. And we have created all of these problems, and they are pre predictable. So people, you know, want to say sex is inconsequential fun, but the reality is it's of such import that sexual sin is condemned in the strongest terms throughout Scripture. Now, how do we apply this? Two questions, and we'll come to the Lord's table, and they're pretty obvious questions. Do I understand the nature of marriage? I'm, I'm dwelling on this because our culture is telling you, I didn't even have to look. These articles are just popping up every day. They pop up in my news feed. This is what's going on. And this goes back, you remember I started the series early on with Justice Kennedy and the Obergefell decision, that the heart of freedom is defining reality for myself. Actually, it's not, okay? If I define gravity doesn't exist and fling myself off of a tall building, I can define it all the way right down to the concrete. Doesn't work that way. Freedom is living in accord with reality. And so, remember, this is what's being stated, but it's false on both claims, what our culture is saying. Reality is given by God, and it's not up to us to determine and marriage is given by God as part of that reality because he was writing that specifically about defining marriage the way we want. We don't get to define reality and we don't get to define marriage. And so as we've seen previously in the series, we talked a little bit earlier about being body and soul and literally written into our DNA is whether I'm male or female. But of course, we are rejecting that as a culture. And a big part of that is because of the sexual licentiousness and freedom. We wouldn't have gotten to that if we hadn't already bought in in all these other ways. And so marriage is God's gift for us to have a man and a woman to be joined together uh, as one in a lifelong bond. But our culture denies every single aspect of that. It began by us saying it's not a lifelong bond. It can be easily broken by no-fault divorce, and very often because I found somebody else I wanted sexually. Let's be honest. And let me be really honest, it was usually guys. And when then-Governor Reagan signed the first no-fault divorce law 
Back in California in the 1960s, we had opened Pandora's box. Make no mistake, and we have been reaping ill fruit ever since. So today, we say, well, you know, we went from no-fault divorce. It can be a man and a woman. It can be same sex. It can be either of these. In fact, why not? Why does it have to be two people? Now, the crazy thing is that each step, there have been sane voices who've said, you realize by your logic, this is where you're moving next, including in the Obergefell decision, a couple of justices said, there's no reason to stop at just same sex. Why not polyamory? Oh, that'll never happen except for it just did two weeks ago. And it's going to continue because just follow the logic. It is where it ends up. And so all of this, however, remember, is the end, as it ties in with the whole series that we're talking about. This is merely the logical step along the way in this long process. If we are just material beings who evolved by chance, there is no right and wrong. Now, people don't actually live that way, but we do use that philosophy to provide cover for the things in which I want to engage. If we're not the image of God, we don't have a given nature. We're free to make plastic man be whatever it is we want. Even my sex and my gender is not determined by things like my DNA and body parts, but it's rather self-determined. And freedom is found, therefore, in the unfettered choice to do whatever I want to do, not in aligning with my given nature. And when you say that, then when I'm tired of being married to the same person, I just dump them and leave and go on. And if I've decided I like other men, then, then I'm free to do that. And if I decide I'm not even this, whatever there is, the only evil is saying no to whatever I'm desiring at the moment. That's what's happened in our culture. So the question for you and me, given that's what's swirling around us, are my thoughts of marriage shaped by Scripture or culture? Because trust me, we, we, our culture is wrong at every step. And they are hammering that on you and me at every step. So have I subconsciously been buying into the lies that led to this result? Because again, it goes all the way back. If you start down this track, this is the problem that's happened. I mean, Nietzsche said this almost 200 years ago, you know, 175 years ago or so, when he said, look, God is dead. We, we've killed God, and this is where we're going. And everybody tried to stop because they didn't like, but Nietzsche was laying out, he was painting it very accurately. If you believe this, this is the logical outcome. And everybody wants to say, no, it's not. Well, welcome to the brave new world because it is the logical outcome. And the only answer for you and I is not to say, I don't like same-sex. That has nothing to do with whether it's right or wrong. Whether I like it or don't like it, See, do I look and see, you know, if I'm watching a movie and two guys kiss, do I say, that's just wrong? But I watch two people who are not married engage in sexual activity, and I think, well, that does, they seem to love each other. If I think that, I have bought the lie. And make no mistake, it will produce fruit in my life that will be destructive. So that's the first question. Second one, do I understand the true nature of sex? 
The errors regarding sexual activity are even more prevalent than the ones regarding marriage. Many of the evangelicals, self-proclaimed evangelicals, that are cohabiting will say, oh, I, I think marriage is a man and a woman and a lifelong bond. So they've got marriage right, but our sexual behaviors are wrong. Because we bought into the lie that as long as it's two consenting adults, that's all that matters. But see, the false I- that false idea has left a trail of carnage, broken hearts, destroyed relationships, and now ultimately me too. Okay? It's all obvious this is where we are going. We're headed down a path and then we're shocked at where we arrive. But I, I talked to a young woman a few years ago who was struggling with a lot of difficult relationships, and she very often seemed to end up in abusive relationships. And she was a strong young woman. She was actually a uh, prior Marine, had served in combat. But she kept getting in these relationships, and I talked to her. I said, how long before you began engaging in sex? And in every case, it was within a couple of dates. And I said, you are setting yourself up for this disaster. Every, you keep doing the same thing, and you keep getting the same result. And I know I'm not popular by telling you this, but you need to stop that. And, and for young ladies, and I would even say the same thing for young guys, if he doesn't want you, and we've been dating for three weeks, and Jesus, time to have sex, dump the bum. Dump him. As a young Marine, I didn't hold my wife's hand until we were engaged, which made me really popular with my fellow Marines. They all thought that was a brilliant idea. You don't have to. And I told people, I I had people trying to pressure me, and I was like, I'm a man. I don't need to do that. I'm in control of myself. I'm treating my young date here, Linda Schaefer, like she's a woman that is the image of God and like she is to be respected. And let me tell you, if I didn't respect her then, I wouldn't respect her now 36 years later. Don't listen to those lies. Do not listen to them. Sex is a great gift of God, but it has to be practiced and received as he designed it. So the the questions to tease us out and then we'll come to the table. Do I see that the only legitimate sexual activity is between a man and a woman within the bond of marriage, within the covenant bond of marriage? Do I understand that? And what that means is it's answered all the other questions for us because that means same-sex activity is sinful. And it means when I'm feeling that desire and urge, the response is no. And if I give in and I sin, the response is repentance and confession, not making excuses. But it also means that heterosexual activity prior to marriage is wrong. It just simply is. And it means my response to that is to say no. And if I have fallen and failed, to repent and to confess and to ask God for forgiveness and to get up and to try and change it. It also means that adultery is sinful, no matter what. See, for every one of these things, if you think about it, we've come up with other terms, right? We don't call it adultery anymore. We don't call the guy a whoremonger. 
they had a fling. There was an affair, right? Because it sounds ugly when we use the other terms. Well, you know why it sounds ugly? Because it is ugly. That's why. See, we Hollywood, you know, makes the lens kind of go all blurry and isn't it wonderful? And the, you know, cue the string music and all of that. It's ugly. It's ugly. Adultery always is. Fornication always is. Too many Christians have strongly reacted against LGBTQ plus sinful activity and then winked at heterosexual sin. They're in the same list in 1 Corinthians 6. And whatever Paul means when he says, do not be deceived, you will not inherit the kingdom, applies to a young boy, a young man and a young woman, as it does to a young man and a young man. They're, they're, they're not the same. It's kind of quiet in here right now. Okay, we, we, we need to be clear about that, and we need to speak consistently. Okay, it's not because I find one distasteful personally. It's because whether it lines up with the Word of God or not. And then the final sub-question in this one, do I embrace the biblical sexual ethic in my thoughts, desires, and actions? It's not enough that it's just in my actions. Sin's not just a matter of outward actions. It begins with inward thoughts and attitudes and desires. You remember Jesus said, the guy that supposedly didn't speak to these things, Jesus said, if a man looks at a woman lustfully, he has done what? Committed adultery in the heart. How much of our culture is predicated upon attempting to get me to look lustfully? I mean, I can't buy socks without them bringing sex into it. Everything is sold by, am I lying? I mean, man, if you, if you said cut out sex from advertising, we'd have a lot less commercials, which would be great. But it's how everything is done. They are trying to encourage that. And I used to even talk to Christian friends who'd say, well, you know, it doesn't hurt to sit in the chair as long as you don't get your hair cut. It doesn't hurt to look at the menu as long as you're not trying the food. Yes, it does. Because if you're looking at the menu, you're going to find yourself hungry. So stop. And I realize what a challenge is. I wish the day I became a pastor, that was not a problem. I can assure you that didn't come along with being called to be an elder. It's a battle that we have to fight. Changing thoughts, and, uh, our thoughts and desires, wandering in this, are an early warning sign and that call for repentance and drawing close to God. So I can be sitting here as a married man, married to a woman, been all my life, that doesn't mean I'm free from this sin and saying, yes, all these other people. Am I engaging in my mind? Am I engaging in my heart? If so, the response is the same as all others, which is confession and repentance and coming before Christ and saying, I need you to change me. We're going to be coming to this table, and I remind us that this table is for God's covenant bride, the church. And every time we do this, we have this phrase, until he comes. Because I remind you, this relationship that we're talking about is not minor. It's not a minor point. It's there at the beginning. 
And it's what all of human history is moving towards. And every time we come to this table, we remind ourselves of that. And so we're going to come this morning and, and do this. And what we're going to do is we're going to stand together. And because this is such a huge part of everything, we're going to confess the faith together. So if y'all could go ahead and stand. We're going to do the Apostles' Creed together because I want to remind you that all of this points towards who Jesus is, what he's done, why he came, why we're here, and towards which history is pointing. And one day he's going to return. And he is going to call us all before his throne. And we are going to have a chance as believers to eat and drink with him. So friends, let's confess the faith together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You can be seated. Friends, if you believe this, then you are invited to the table this morning. And I tell you again, I want to remind you and be clear on this. If I've said things this morning that strike at activities and desires and struggles in your own heart, then I want to urge you, come to the table. Confess. Repent. Don't, don't make excuses. If we want to make excuses, then, we can't, then don't come to the table. But if we confess and repent, come to the table receive mercy and forgiveness and let's cry out for the holy spirit to empower us because i remind you the whole context of what we're talking about this is freedom it's not freedom to walk in a way we're not designed it's no more freedom for a human to engage in the kinds of things we've been talking about this morning than it is for that fish to flop up on the bank you're gasping you're crying out for breath because you're not where you were designed to be. So I encourage you this morning, if you struggle with this, it's not the time to not partake. It's the time to repent and confess and to partake. And so as it says at the very end of the scripture, I remind you the Lord Jesus says, I invite you to come. And the spirit and the bride say, come. Let him who is a hungry come and eat. Let him who is thirsty come and drink of the water of life for what i receive from the lord i pass on to you that the lord jesus on the night he was betrayed he took bread when he had given thanks he broke it he said this is my body which is broken for you do this in remembrance of me and in the same way after supper he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread 
and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, go ahead and take the packets. And if you did not have one, there are some in the back that you could grab. Peel off the first layer and we will take the bread together. Father, as we have just confessed, you are the almighty maker of heaven and earth. You created all things visible and invisible, including us. And Lord, you have designed us so that we are made for you. But Father, we confess, not the sins of others, but our own. Lord, as we have meditated for these weeks on Genesis 1 and 2, we see so many ways that we fall short. But we take this bread this morning, not in a confession of our perfection, but of our sin. But we also take it in faith that Jesus was broken so that we might be made whole. So we give you thanks for the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. Take and eat. Lord Jesus, as we hold this cup, the cup of the covenant, we just recounted that it was on the night you were betrayed that you gave us this cup. But Lord, in another way, we recognize that our betrayal was not just that night. It was not just Judas. Lord, we have been betraying you from the garden. And Lord, we confess that even in the areas that we have talked about today, in our thoughts and words and deeds, Father, we have fallen short. Lord Jesus, we have violated your commands and done it to our own destruction. But we give you thanks as we hold this cup because we believe your blood is more powerful than all of our sin. And so our confession this morning is not that we are righteous, but that you are righteous. And that your blood is able to cleanse us of all of our sins. And so we confess them freely, and we ask you for cleansing and absolution by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, take and drink. Let's stand together. And uh, as I'm concluding in prayer, I encourage you, please, cry out to the Holy Spirit. As you listen to this again, even if you're here and, you know, I, I'm preaching this one this morning and I've been married since 1984. I've been with one woman my entire life. All of that. Friends, this is a struggle for every one of us. If you say in this culture this is not a struggle for you, you're lying. Okay, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. And there's good news. He meets us to empower us. So let's cry out for that. Holy Spirit of the living God, I cry out for you to fall fresh on us. Lord, we want to walk in obedience, not to earn salvation. That was given to us by broken body and shed blood. But Lord, 
we realize, even as the Apostle Paul told us, when we walk in sexual sin, when we are unfaithful to our spouse, Lord God, when we are following these desires, Lord, we are sinning against ourselves. Lord, it locks us into a cage, and we want to experience freedom. And the Apostle Paul told us that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So fall upon us, Holy Spirit. Be stirred up within us. Give us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Give us a despising of sin in our own heart. Give us compassion on those around us who are struggling with whatever sin it is, that we might come alongside them, encourage them, and point them to Jesus. Lord, we humbly recognize we are not the solution. Only Jesus is. And so, Lord, we ask that you would empower us this morning to live lives of holiness, that you would give us boldness in this culture. Lord, that even when people do not want to hear these things, Lord, that we would continue to press through because, Lord, this is the key to freedom. Lord, would you empower us, Holy Spirit, strengthen us, and keep us until the marriage supper of the Lamb. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And friends, I'm going to speak a benediction over us this morning out of Psalm 128. And I encourage you to receive the blessing of the Lord. May the Lord bless you all the days of your life. May you see the prosperity of God's people. And may you live to see your children's children. Peace be upon the chosen people of God. Friends, you are blessed. Go forth and spread his blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.